if there's one message that you'll get from today's interview, it's to enjoy the journey. Our guest today is going to talk about his journey, the ups and downs, and how you have to see the potential in others, and you have to put in the work, and you have to trust the process, but you also have to enjoy every step of the journey. I want to give a major shout out to my cousin, John Elmer, who got me in contact with our guest today um, with a simple connection at a local gym. And so, John, massive shout out to you, brother. I love you, man. Thank you so much for this uh, opportunity. Just a simple connection uh, can go a long way. So I appreciate you, man. And I hope everybody else enjoys this interview. This is the Game Time Guru. So. What time is it? Game Time Boost. This is the Game Time Guru podcast, where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. What's up, everybody? Welcome out to another episode of the Game Time Guru Podcast. I am your host, Shane Larson. Want to give a massive shout out to everybody who's been listening and following the show for the last five years. We have hit over 70,000 downloads. 92 different countries is where we are. And it's in uh, due in large part to everybody who supported it. So for those listening right now, before we even get into the interview, I just want to say thank you to all the supporters. If, if this is your first time listening, welcome aboard. I mean, this was a, a goal that I had from a long time ago. I was graduating from college and I decided I was going to do this thing and uh, push it out and, and make it into a business. And it has grown into that. And I appreciate every single person who has supported now also want to say thank you to every single guest that has been on the show weekly episodes and learning their stories and their journeys and a massive shout out to our guest today mr thurl bailey who is joining us to share his story his journey with us so thurl thanks so much for joining the show man oh my pleasure shane and congratulations to you for what you've been able to do with this show i appreciate you man i appreciate you uh, you know as a jazz fan this is a special opportunity for me to learn more about your journey and so forth but um, I also am just grateful because I know I got a lot of listeners, kids that I coach in basketball that can learn from you. And I want to rewind the clock, Thurl, to before your college days even. I mean, it, for those who know you, you, you dominated the college scene. Um, and we will talk a little bit about that too. But I want to rewind the clock to your your earlier days. When did you first pick up a basketball and what caused you to have this uh, passion for the sport? Um, great word, passion. Uh, I, I, I developed that actually when I was about 12 years old. I was 12 or 13 years old and living in D.C. My parents had moved up to D.C. from North Carolina right before I was born. And so um, it was in 1961. So as I got older, you know, in the 60s, that was a pretty interesting time for our country. It was middle of civil rights and uh, a lot of black communities weren't faring so well with equality and, and being able to have some of the things that you know our counterparts were, were, had, were able to have access to. And um, so education was just vital in my family. And when busing started, my, my parents wanted us totally to focus on our education because that was going to be our successful way out of a tough community. But in the middle of all that, you know, for a pastime, I was watching uh, a basketball game with my dad. I'd never watched basketball before. I wasn't interested in it. 
until I sat down with him. I was about 12 and I was about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, um, and I wasn't pushed into sports. But I saw a guy playing in that game. I didn't know who he was, and I could tell that he was a brilliant player. He was very athletic. He had some cool short shorts on, and he had an afro that just wouldn't quit, Shane. And uh, I just asked my dad who he was because I knew he was the best player out there. And my dad proceeded to tell me his name was Dr. J. And so that's when I really became intrigued, at least, with the game. And, and then after that, uh, that excitement didn't go away after I watched him play. And so I asked my dad. Uh, I decided really on my own that I wanted to be Dr. J after watching him play. And so I asked my dad if he would teach me how to play basketball. And then that was kind of the beginning of um, my journey to actually play basketball. Now I had to learn, I was uncoordinated at an early age, so I had to learn how to, uh, how to play and have my coordination catch up with me. But that was really what got me started, got the passion started uh, for me to play the game. I love that story. I love hearing that kind of stuff. That's super cool. And did I hear you correctly when you said you were like 6'3 or 6'4 when you were 12 years old? I don't know if I heard that correctly, but can you elaborate on that real quick? You were, were you 6'3 when you were 12 years old? I was. I was I was pretty tall. You know, I, it wasn't until I got older that I started hearing the stories about you know, how long I was as a baby. My mom used to tell her girlfriends that when the doctor was was uh, bringing me into the world. They had to open the doors behind them because I just kept coming, just kept coming out. I was just such a long baby. And so uh, I knew that that I was going to be tall. My mom was six feet. My dad was six, six. So it was, it was inevitable. Uh, but yeah, I, I was tall and, and it wasn't an asset early on. It was really a handicap, if you will. It was, it was really a, a crutch because I, I wasn't coordinated, didn't play sports early on. And I was taller than everybody, and I uh, just was awkward. I was an awkward elementary and junior high school kid. Gotcha. Man, that's crazy. That's it, super cool, though. I mean, eventually, you know, you found the passion for the game through Dr. J. I think that's also really, really cool stuff that I didn't know. And eventually your journey took you to NC State. And those who follow the sport um, and follow the history of the sport, they know about the magical run under, you know, Coach Jimmy V and and, you know, they know who who was running the show over there and who was doing their thing on the on that team. But I'd like to pick your brain now that I've got you here on what it was like to play for, you know, Coach V, you know, just what what it was like to play under him. What was the culture like there under his leadership? And maybe what was your biggest uh, life lesson that you learned from uh, Jimmy V? Well, to set up the answer to that, let me take you back uh, just a little bit before that because when I went to junior high school my seventh grade year I was about six five and I tried out for the team and the coach cut me um, so I my dad made me a makeshift court in my yard and I proceeded to continue practicing my game and my Dr. J moves that I would see him make so I went and tried out my eighth grade team the next year same coach I was six nine actually six seven in the eighth grade and uh, I got cut again. So I was cut twice. And um, that coach who cut me both those years, he came up to me after he cut me the second time and basically said, 
listen, I don't have time to teach you how to play. Um, don't come back out for the team next year because uh, I'm looking for a team who can win a championship this year, and, and I just I'm looking for guys who can already play. So I knew that my path to being Dr. J wasn't going to be through probably organized basketball. Um, but I grew another inch. I came back at six nine, my ninth grade year, and then um, we had a new coach. The coach who cut me had got a new job, and so they hired a new guy. And I decided I was going to try out again. And I wasn't great. If I wasn't the worst guy there, I was right next to him. And so um, I made the team that year. And uh, my job was to go in for the jump balls at six nine, get the first possession of the game. And then as soon as we got the first possession, the coach would always call a timeout and take me out for the rest of the game. So I averaged 2.5 seconds a game in junior high school. But what changed me, Shane, what changed my life, what gave me more passion was that coach sat me down and told me I had a lot of work to do if I wanted to be a really good player. But he said, I'll come in one hour before we practice as a team to work with you. And after we practice two hours as a team, I'll come back and work another hour with you if you're willing to commit, he said. And I committed that day. And that, that's the day that changed my life was when he told me, explained to me what potential was, what he, what he saw in me. Um, and then I went on to have some other good coaches. Uh, didn't play varsity my first year in high school, but I came into my own my second year, second and third year, got a scholarship had some offers, but I chose NC State because a coach named Norm Sloan was coaching, and I, my mom loved him. And back then, if you wanted your kid to come to your school, you better talk to his mother. Yeah. So he came in, came and visited us and sat down, and my mom asked him all these questions about my education. And, and she looked at me and said, son, you're going to NC State. Okay, all right, mom. So I committed to NC State under Coach Norm Sloan. After my freshman season there, he left and took a job in Florida. And uh, I was all distraught. A lot of us were. Guys he recruited, they didn't want to stay. I didn't want to stay. So I called my mom and told her I was coming home. And I'm going to quote her. She said, son, you may be going somewhere, but you're not coming here. You're going to stay there and get your education. You're going to wait and see who they hire. And who knows, you might like the guy. So if you can picture us sitting in this cafeteria, a small cafeteria, a bunch of chairs, disgruntled young young players sitting in the chair waiting on some new guy that they don't even know and trust walk into a room. Um, that's what That was us, arms crossed, feet stretched out. We didn't want to hear what this man had to say because we didn't know him. So he walks in, introduces himself, and says, I'm Jim Balbano. You guys can call me Coach V, whatever you want. He said, I know how you're feeling, and uh, I just want to tell you guys that I know, this is what he says, Shane, I know that I'm going to win a national championship. And I thought to myself first, that that's kind of selfish. He just said him. He said, I know I'm going to win one soon. I've dreamt about it. I know how it looks and feels. And he said, if I can get you guys to see what I'm seeing and dream what I'm dreaming, if you'll buy in to this, I think we can win a national championship really soon. I know it's going to happen. So he's talking to us for 25, 30 minutes and, at the end of it, you know, it was like you were so excited that you, you didn't want to leave. That's how he framed it, right? You felt like if you left, you were going to miss something that you would regret for the rest of your life. And so that was our first introduction to Jimmy. 
And so uh, our, our, our next introduction to him was his philosophy, right? He brought a ladder into one of our first practices, put it under the hoop, and he said, today we're just going to practice for two hours. We're going to cut the nets down. He had a pair of gold scissors. He, he, he said, yeah, go up. You guys will go up and cut it down. I'll go up last. I'm going to put it around my neck. And you're going to practice carrying me around this 12,000-seat empty arena like you just won the national championship. And so it was the most awkward thing any of us had ever done. <laughs> but his point was is that if we want to win this championship, if we want to get to the ultimate goal, we've got to be uncomfortable. We've got to do things that are, are unorthodox. We've got to think about things in a different way and 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 really envision ourselves winning that championship. What would you do? What would be the first thing you'd do if you won a national championship? And so we had to practice that. Um, and ultimately, uh, we learned what all that was about when we, we won the 1983 championship. And learning so much from V, probably if I had to pick one thing, it was to be a visionary, right? It was to to really believe and project yourself into what you want. What, whatever your ultimate goal looks like, right? You've got to be able to see it and dream it and think about it and then collect folks around you, put your team together that can help you get there. I love that. I love that story. I think that's so important in life, you know, to not just be like you have the vision, but like you just mentioned there, Thurl was surrounding yourself with the people that will help you get there. And I think in the process of life in general, you start to realize you kind of have to weed out your inner circle sometimes. Um, and that's difficult decisions, but if you want to be able to make it to your ultimate goals, you got to have the right people around you surrounded. And that's why I think sports in life, there's so many parallels. That's why I, I did this show is to kind of show that, you know, highlight those types of stories. And so that's just cool for me to hear. Cause you know, I wasn't even born yet. I was born in 88. And so, I mean, I've, I've studied the history of Jimmy V. I studied the history of that, that Wolfpack squad. And, and I know of the stories in the season, but I've never heard it from a player's perspective. And that's really cool. I did not know that he did that, to, you know, basically in his infancy there at that program. So that's really, really cool. Also want to highlight how mom knows best. Um, I love that you, you mentioned uh, your mom and the influence she had and the respect you have for her. It's, it kind of reminds me, it's, it's funny because I spoke with Jerry Stackhouse one time on the show and he had very similar stories about mom not letting him come back from college when he was upset. So I, I think that's funny, too. I just want to shout out all the moms there, too, because mom always knows best. My, when my mother listened to that episode, and she'll listen to this one, too, which huge shout out to her. She loves you, by the way. She's like, I love Thurl, baby. They can't oh, tell her, thank you. Yeah, I will. I will. She'll be super happy. But, like, mom always knows best. And I, I just wanted to highlight that from what you had just said. Now, Thurl, you were a top 10 pick. I mean, what's crazy to me, and I hope the listeners listening to this realize, like, you talking about you know, a relatively, you know, a later start into the basketball world. And when you were getting older and you're starting to, you know, come to, but then going through adversity, getting cut twice. Um, and then still, you know, when you got to go play 2.5 seconds is what you're averaging in a game. And, but you put the work in, uh, your coach dedicated himself to you. You dedicate yourself to your coach, the time, put the work in, you end up going into the NBA. And this is where I, I'm just so intrigued because to the normal person, they might just think, oh, yeah, he was an NBA basketball player. But they don't realize the adversity you had to go through and the, the hard work that went into it before that. But when you got into the NBA, I'm curious, championship, you know, a national championship basketball program that you were part of going into the NBA, what was the biggest transition for you uh, coming into the NBA? And uh, then I'll ask you some more stuff about the Jazz, but I would like to know the biggest transition that you had going into the National Basketball Association. 
Well, there's no shortcuts to success, really. I mean, you've got to put the work in regardless. You talked about how sports, specifically basketball, is a microcosm of life uh, and, and business, if you will. Um, I, I think the biggest transition for me was believing that I could sustain, not just make the top level in sports, in basketball, is, but to, to stay. Because I think sometimes we get satisfied with just making it, right? Mm-hmm. And making it is one step of it, but um, to be an impact player, to, to be a huge part of that team. Um, and even when I was, you know, doing the jump ball in junior high school, I felt like I was making an impact, right? I didn't feel like, you know, he was punishing me. I mean, my job, I had one job, Shane. I had one job in junior high school, and that was to get the first possession of the game. And I took pride in that. I, the realization was I knew I wasn't a great player. I wasn't going to get a lot of time, but this was just a stepping stone. Um, but the transition from college to pro, we won a national championship, so automatically the stock of our players went up. Everybody right. was taking notice of this team who had done something so incredible, right? Okay, we, we, didn't, we, we didn't know much about them before. We, we knew about that team down the road with that, you know, that blue and white and Dean Smith and, and those other guys, but man, let's look at this team a little closer at Sidney Lowe and Derek Wittenberg and, and Thurl Bailey. Um, so I knew that my college career was over and I knew that the NBA would have some interest. I didn't know to what level, but when I found out that I was going to go in the first round, um, now I had a sense of, okay, I know I'm going to be drafted, but now what do I need to do to continue to prepare for that and stay and not just make the team or make the league, but I, to have longevity in it and to grow and continue to learn. Because a lot of people think when they get to that, that level that they don't need to learn anything else because they're already there. And that's, that's, uh, that's not the way, that's not the, the mindset you need to have. Uh, and my parents taught me that as well. But, um, yeah, I think the biggest transition for me was a physical one. I, I left college about a 6'11 and 199 pounds. And when I got to the NBA, I realized it was a man's game. And I had a lot to learn about my preparation off the court. You know, not within, don't, don't start working during the season, right? Prepare yourself and, and, and be as ready as you can, especially with the physical and mental aspect. But that was the biggest transition, but once I, I was educated on that and got through that and saw that I could really have an impact and, and be an asset asset to the team I was on at the time, which was coached by Frank Layden, um, coming in with guys like Daryl Griffith, who had won a championship at Louisville, uh, Adrian Dantley, one of the top scorers in the league, Mark Eaton. Um, and so, uh, you know, I had a lot to learn, but it was it was about absorbing that information and using it that really made that transition easier. That is awesome. I love that you mentioned preparation, touch base on that. I remember speaking to Walter Bond, um, who also had a short stint in the NBA. He also talked about the offseason. He's a big proponent of putting in work in the offseason, and that's also in, in business and life. And you just mentioned the offseason, the preparation that goes into that to, to build yourself up. 
I hope the listeners here understand that whether you're just in business or you're, you're a young athlete that's listening to the show, the off season, I mean, that they, they say, you know, you're built during the summer for high school athletes. Like you don't just show up and start playing. If you want to compete at the next level, you got to put the work in, but on the, on the off season, like that's the reality of it. Uh, you got to sacrifice something uh, to be able to be able to compete at the next level. Not, and love, I love what you said, Thurl, not just making it, but being able to stay there and, and, and continue to go. I, I think that's so awesome. So many people get complacent, you know, now I want to ask you, so I'm a jazz fan, always have been families from Utah. I'm in, I currently reside in Idaho. I'm born and raised in Idaho, but my whole family's from Utah. So I, every single year I'm going to jazz games. It's only a four and a half hour drive to Salt Lake. Love the jazz. And that was where you spent the majority of your NBA career. Obviously you had some time with the T wolves and then played overseas as well. But I want to know your thoughts on this, the the jazz community. What what is your biggest takeaway, good or bad, from the Utah Jazz community? Um, I love the jazz community. I'm still here in Utah because right. the community embraced me when I came here as a rookie. Um, you know, we're creatures of habit and we're creatures of, of, of our surroundings. I grew up in the predominantly well, all black area. In DC, and didn't really come in contact with with white people until they started uh, the busing to from black schools to white schools. So, um, you know, if you've ever watched, remember the Titans, that was the scene, right? Parents protesting and picketing and not wanting to to integrate. Um, so I grew up through that. My parents were amazing educators, though. They never came home, even though they were actively involved in, in part of that civil rights movement. They never came home angry. They just came home to educate and teach their kids. And so um, I, I think this community, when I first arrived here, it was a culture shock to me. But the basketball culture wasn't, right? I mean... There were guys that I could, I was drawn to, to the team, and I hung out white and black. So in that world, in that community, that was diverse, if you will, that was that was our safe haven. Um, but what I found out and what I learned, for the most part, was what was in here with the people I was uh, surrounded around. I mean, my community, my Utah community, they embraced me. And it was, it's such a great and loving community. And so I, I, I felt that right away. I felt that it wasn't fake. I felt I was welcome. And that's why I'm here today, because even though I've lived other places, I've wanted, always wanted that feeling. And I've always loved that. I, I like to get out and but get back. But um, Utah as a state in itself offers so much, whether it's volunteerism or whether it's beautiful scenery, people here are amazing. And, um, and so it's been great to be a part of uh, the the team here, but also a part of this community. That's so cool. Yeah, like anybody I've ever spoken to that that knows who you are, obviously they they have nothing but good things to say about you and like how how much respect they've had for you. It's like it's just so cool. Like it's awesome how it's it's all connected. And then to see it like in context when you arrived, obviously that was a different point of 
you know, the world and what was going on in society at that time and stuff. And so it's kind of cool to see how it's all evolved and how you were so well welcomed over there. I just, I, I find that I geek out on that kind of stuff. And that's, that's what I like about the history and just seeing what, you know, what kind of drew you, drew you there. Now, in regards to the competition in the NBA, a question I have for you, Thurl, is who is the best player that you had ever gone up against? I mean, your career extended into the, the late, late 90s, almost early 2000s. I mean, as far as your professional career is concerned. So who's the best player you ever faced? And what was the best, like, what was the toughest thing about that player? Like, who was the best player you ever faced? When you say face, you mean I actually had to guard him, right? I will say, yeah, that you competed against directly. That's a better way to frame that question, that you had to guard. Larry Bird. Larry Bird. Ooh. Without question. And, and people people would say, well, well, he wasn't fast. He couldn't jump high. He probably had the highest basketball IQ of any player I, I ever played against um, because he was a real professor, not a student. He was a real professor of the game. He knew angles. He knew where to be. He knew how to get his shot off without a lot of elevation. He was a great rebounder. Um, and at the end of the game, you look at the stat sheet and he had 50 on you, right? And it's like, wow, I thought I did a decent job on him. But he was just such a amazing competitor. And I caught him towards the mid, towards mid end of his career, but he, he still was uh, an amazing opponent. And uh, I never, I wasn't a trash talker. And I don't think Bird was um, initially he was only a trash talker if you started him. He talked with his game. But I had a teammate named I had a teammate named John Drew who started the games. I would sub in for him when I was a young player. And we were playing Boston at the garden. And John could score. John was he he won sixth man of the year later in his career, but he knew how to, to score the ball. Well, I'm, I'm on the bench watching him, and, and Larry's just uh, – Larry's lighting him up. And then he's, he's scoring a little bit too, but he starts talking trash to Larry, and I could hear him going up and down the court. I think Larry just got sick of it, man. He just got tired of it, and he just went – I mean, he would – he rattled off like 10 straight, 12 straight buckets, and Coach Frank Layden pulls – Drew out of the game, and um, he sits down. I go in the game, and I'm a young player, right? I know my place. But I walk in the game, and Larry Bird looks at me, and he says, "Okay, young fella, it's your turn." And that's what that's what John Drew did to me, right? He <laughs> he set me up for just a total. To get my language, total ass kicking by, by, by Larry Bird, and he did have 50 that night, um, and most of them were on Drew. But you know, I have to take responsibility myself. But uh, yeah, those are the kind of things. Larry Bird was just a fierce competitor and taught me a lot about the game and taught me how to mature and and, uh, and hold my own as well. That is an awesome story. Yeah, your teammate definitely set you up for the assist on that one. That's that's funny. Yes, yeah, did. you had to, <laughs> you had to go I in there. And, <laughs> I bet, I bet, man. That's that's awesome though. And to that point, I I do want to ask. You know, as far as a teammate is concerned, you had 
um, you know, you you had quite a career in the in, in the professional game, NBA and overseas. But who is the teammate that you had? If you could choose one, I guess there's probably tons of them that have had an influence. But who is the teammate that had the biggest impact on you during your professional career, and why? Wow, it, it's if I had to choose one, it'd be tough. But um, I have to I have to give some honorable mentions before I choose that one. Because when I first came into the NBA, excuse me, there's a fly that's bugging me like Larry Bird did. Um, <laughs> if I had to choose a guy when I first came in, two guys when I first came into the league, Daryl Griffith had just won a championship with Louisville a year before, a couple of years before. I came to the team and he came to me right away and he said, because the Jazz had not been winning at all. Uh, I mean, just dismal seasons. And so he said, Thurl, I know you're just coming off a championship, but I don't want you to have high expectations um, because I know you're a winner. You might have to go through a few years of, of, of not winning like I did. So he kind of prepared me for the blow of potentially, um, you know, starting from the ground up. The other guy was my, my late friend, Mark Eaton, uh, who just passed away a few months ago. Uh, he was the big wing. He was the big wing that took me under and, and just uh, helped me understand the business of basketball and, and uh, you know, just how to be a professional. But I'd have to say that Carl uh, Malone, who came two years after I did, right? John Stockton came a year after me. He was, he's my, one of my best friends today. But I'd have to say the example of Carl and the way he came in with a chip on his shoulder because, you know, he, he was drafted 13th, probably should have gone top five. Um, but again, it was that, that lens that whoever the general managers just didn't see what they wanted to see. In him. And, but he came in and you could see from day one, he was a sponge. He absorbed it. And the biggest jump that he made in this league was in the off season. Carl Malone had workouts that hadn't, hadn't even been invented until he invented them. And he, he was one of the first guys that was running on the track with a parachute behind him, climbing up a mountain, you know, with weights on. And so his work ethic really, I think, set in with me and a lot of other guys and it really helped my longevity as a player. I mean, I played 16 years professionally and it was because of guys like Carl who showed you how to prepare. So you didn't try to come to camp and get in shape. You were already ready. And once you set that standard, everybody else was like, no, I'm not coming in out of shape. So we're going to be ready to go when we get there. Man, that's so cool. And the names that you're dropping, I mean, obviously, as a fan of the sport and fan of the jazz, I know the names and I've heard the stories. But that is super, super cool to hear the impact of that. Now, you did mention, Thurl, that you played overseas a little bit, too. And we've talked about it. We've alluded to it earlier in the thing in, in the interview. And I wanted to ask you about your experience overseas because some people have this idea that there's not good basketball. If it's not the NBA, it's terrible basketball. And I disagree wholeheartedly. I've interviewed multiple people who have played overseas. I think it's a great option for a lot of people, but I'd like to know your, your experience playing overseas. Was there a cultural shock? Was the, the level of basketball too low? Like what was it like for you playing overseas coming from the NBA and then, and then making your way over there? Um, well, I think at first, Honestly, at first it was the money. Um, I had just finished my contract with the Timberwolves, and I don't think they they weren't going to re-sign me. 
So I, I could either, you know, take my chances and have my agent figure out another team that I could play on, or I could take some really good money that was being offered back then because uh, there was a limitation on the amount of foreigners, Americans you could have on each team. You could only have two unless you had a passport for that particular country. Um, so I decided uh, I had an offer from Greece and I decided to, to take that, that offer. Um, the shock, the culture shock was more of basketball culture shock. It was, you could get away with so much more physically over there. They could basically beat you down and not have a foul call. Um, so it taught me a lot. It taught me how to be a tougher player. And it also taught me because I wasn't the number one option with the Jazz, right? I mean, I was a sixth man most of my career. But it, it also taught me because they relied on Americans, especially Americans who had played in the NBA, they relied on you to come in and be the leader on that team. And not necessarily from the standpoint of scoring, but yes, that too. Um, but bringing your professional knowledge from the best basketball in the world over to another country. So I, I played on the Greek team. I was coached by a great coach who just passed away, Dusan Ivkovic, just a great coach over there. And, and so, um, it taught me a lot. I developed a lot from that Greek team. I only played one year there, and then I went over to Italy. And I tell people this, and they don't, I don't know if they don't believe me, they don't understand, but my three years in Italy, and where I was in Cantu, Italy, near Como and Milan, were three of the greatest years of my professional career. And the basketball may not have been as great as the collective best in the world in the NBA, but collectively everything, the culture, the food, the acceptance of who I was, um, my teammates who are really my good friends today, was a, one of the best periods that I had in my career because it didn't all feel like business. It had a it had a uh, high school, it had a college element to it where you did everything together, you ate together. You can go off by yourself if you want, but the culture just uh, lended itself to, you know, being together, being around each other, and that helped us on the basketball court. That's awesome. That actually is really cool to hear. And I can see that from those who have played over there. And if I really think about it, I'm like, yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. Like a high school slash college feel to it, which for those who have competed at those levels, understand that those are some of the best times of your life. Like you really, it's a brotherhood that's, you know, that's, that's yeah. created and, and it's a family feel to it. So that's awesome, man. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And another question I wanted to, as we're wrapping up the interview, Thurl, I just wanted to ask you in regards to the media side of things. There's been so many times, even in my short career, I mean, I've been doing sports media for a little bit over a decade, but the show I've been running for five years and, you know, people always say, oh, I could talk about sports. I could talk about sports. It's one thing to play. It's another thing to analyze and, and articulate your thoughts and being on broadcast and, and there's the teleprompters and cameras and all sorts of things. There's a lot of elements to, uh, doing sports media it's not just talking with your buddies and i am curious like what is your favorite thing about sports media and your your involvement i guess with uh with sports now compared to when you were playing well i think all of that prepared me for this 
uh, when I say all of that, I don't mean just my playing days, my college days. Uh, I decided I wanted, I started out in political science because I wanted to be in politics. That changed. Um, and it changed for different reasons. I worked at the Capitol as a congressional page for three years before, while I was in college. I would come back home and work as a page. And I just saw some of the the changes that some really good people went through when they got into politics, even though they may have had good intentions. Some, sometimes they would lose their soul along the way or sell out along the way. And I just didn't want to be in that, that world at that time. But um, then I, my major turned into TV, radio, broadcasting, communications. I just thought that one, being able to communicate was going to be vital for anybody especially me, you know, a black male wanting to be successful beyond basketball, even if my basketball career had not panned out professionally, I wanted to be able to communicate effectively with people, look them in the eyes, shake their hands strong, um, let them know how passionate I am about this job, because I know there's 20 other people behind me that want the same job. But uh, my parents, were great communicators and I think I learned a lot from that side. But combining that with my basketball talent, I just thought it would be a good segue for me. Uh, and as a speaker, uh, you know, I travel the world speaking in the off season. Um, so all those things have been able, I've been able to culminate together and, and, and not just use them in my platform, but help other people understand that, um, this is possible, right? Not just broadcasting or media, but the communications part is so vital. Um, whether you're standing up in church to speak or whether you're speaking in front of a group of 10,000 or whether you're having a conversation with one person, it's, it's, it's always great to communicate. But as a player, I always gave the media time. There were times that I didn't want to, but I knew it was important to me because um, I had to learn how to, to be uh, when we lost a game and I felt like, you know, I, I had a big part in that. I had to be able to step up and, you know, and, and say what my shortcomings were and what they were as a team. So it, it really taught me how to um, really talk about the game and then being around great coaches like Valvano and Sloan and Jerry and my Jerry Sloan in in the pros, and uh, and even now uh, Frank Layden, who was my coach, and even now with Coach Quinn Snyder, I watch him coach, and and it's just so interesting how this game and league has evolved, and I have to evolve with it as someone who calls the games. But it's been a blessing for me to be able to to be in this particular industry that we're in. And uh, you meet so many great people. You cross paths with great friends who are still in, in, in the basketball business. And I'm able to get out in the world and, and talk about what I love to do. And people want to hear that. People like to hear experience about experiences. Oh, absolutely, man. I, and I, I just am geeking out right now. I hope you know, like, I'm trying to be as professional as possible, but I am smiling. And, like, I just I, I geek out about this stuff because you prepared yourself 
for a long time. I mean, it, I, the stuff that nobody knows what you were doing in college and preparing yourself and the importance of communication, all these little things that you had been doing and you had prepared yourself for what you're currently doing right now. And yeah. you're currently preparing for what's to come later on too. Like you never know, like you're always doing these things. And I, and I, one thing I will take from this interview is the example that your parents set for you and the example that you are setting for those coming up from behind you as well. Like I, I can already tell, like there is a big example that you have followed and an example that you are setting. And that's actually really cool for me to hear. And I hope others are inspired by that as well. Um, Shane, Earl, this, I gotta, I, go ahead, go ahead. This is why I love what you do because when you first started talking about your show on the intro of this, you talked about the journey and that is the most important thing for all of us. That's what I teach. I teach people how to, how to find their stories and their voices and and talk about their journey more because people can learn so much from that right we get formal educations that's great but i've learned most things in my life from other people's journeys and what they've gone through their successes their failures um, how they got out of that pit it's what i call the pit you know, the, that that low part in their life what they did to get out of it because we all go through the same things and so the journey is so vital for people to understand and that's why I'm really, uh, I'm unfortunate to be on your show because that's really what you talk about. I appreciate that, man. And that's so awesome. I'm just grateful that you've been able to share it. And as we wrap it up, Thrill, I, I guess the last question I'll ask you is the biggest life lesson that basketball has taught you. What is the biggest thing you've taken from basketball that you've been able to apply to your life after you look back at your whole journey and even up until now, because you're still part of the world, the basketball world, I should say. What's the biggest life lesson that basketball has taught you biggest life lesson that's taught me always takes me back to sitting in the coach's office after I made the junior high school team and him telling me I had a lot of work to do and he wanted to know if I was committed and I wanted to know why he would keep me on the team when I wasn't a great player and he said I see potential in you Thurl I see potential in you you don't even see it in yourself and if you're willing, if you want to commit, I'll commit to you. And that's, I think that's the biggest thing that it has taught me because I'm, I'm sitting in the gym right now. You hear a ball bouncing in the background. It's, it's my son, Brendan Bailey, who decided he wanted to play basketball, played AAU, ended up getting a scholarship to Marquette. He stayed two years at Marquette and applied for the draft, didn't get drafted. Um, signed a deal over in Macedonia, uh, home for the summer. He gets a phone call from the Jazz to, they want him to come match up with a guy that they were interested in signing. And he goes in and he's the best player in the gym. So now he's signing a daily contract. I, I'm not boasting about him as much as I'm talking about journeys and potential in people, right? Every kid that walks up to me, whether it was back then or now, um, whether they want to come in here and learn how to play, and they're probably not going to get any more than five, three, five, four. Uh, I see potential in them. I, 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 I learn a lot about them through what they're passionate about. I'm not going to tell the kid he has no shot. Right? I'm not going to tell. I'm just not. Uh, because this kid is going to carve his own path in whatever he decides he wants to do. Um, it's not going to be easy for him, but I think 
when I think about the biggest thing I've learned, it's over the course of my career learned and my life learned what potential really means. Somebody saw it in me and it helped me be able to get to a certain point and build a platform. Now it's my duty and it's my job to go out and do the same thing with what I have. I can do with what I have, whatever I want. I can choose to do good or not good or just do nothing. But I know there's so many kids out there and people in general in business in their personal lives that have potential to be greater than they are right now. And they need to find that they need somebody to see that in them. And that's my probably my biggest takeaway from my journey and and my continuing journey as I go out and use what I have. I love that. And I appreciate you sharing that. And I hope that those listening who are currently playing sports or might be in a similar situation as to what you were in and they're going through the grind, maybe take a second to reflect and, and enjoy the journey and, and and pick some of the things out and realize like there, this is a process. It's an ongoing thing. And to realize like, even if you're struggling, this will be part of the story later on. Like Thurl just shared here on the show. This is a, this is just a piece of the entire story, but it's also what makes the story good, right? There's peaks and valleys. I always tell my kids this, that I'm coaching, you know, they're 16, 70 years old peaks and valleys. If you didn't have that, you have a flat line and in the medical world, that's, that's not good to have a flat line. You need those to keep your heartbeat going. And so, um, I just, it's so cool hearing your story Thurl, And I just appreciate you taking the time to join the show and share that with the audience. So from the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you so much for joining the show. And I wish you the best of luck moving forward with your, 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 your broadcasting journey, as well as your son and his, his basketball journey. I'm just looking forward to continuing to root you on as well as your son. So thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Shane. And you said something that, uh, you know, I, my book, uh, Team of Destiny, about the 1983 championship team, whenever I autograph it for people, I put, enjoy the journey. So you hit it right on the head, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you, sir. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care, Shane. Take care. Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of my show. Now, if you could go and do me a favor, head over to iTunes, give me five stars, and leave me a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your support.